0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Nassim Taleb is a polymath, statistician, risk analyst, economist, the list goes on and on. Taleb has developed the concept of anti-fragility. The basic idea is that there are things that are fragile, like china teacups. There are things that are resilient, like plastic water bottles. And there are things that are anti-fragile, like macroeconomic systems or the human body. Fragile things have to be treated with care, otherwise they shatter. Resilient things can be treated with or without care and they'll likely be fine. Anti-fragile things, though, have to be stressed and stretched. If they're not, they'll atrophy and become as broken as fragile things, but for the opposite reason. Anti-fragility is an important concept in our world right now that speaks to things from macroeconomic processes, pedagogical models, all the way down to how to parent children. The key, of course, is to know which sort of thing you're dealing with. Professor Taleb might very well tell us that the church is an anti-fragile thing, and it's just as likely that Christ beat him to the punch. Our gospel lesson today has a lot going on at multiple levels, but the first thing I want to point out is that Jesus immediately makes the disciples get into a boat and head into a storm. The image of a boat in water looms large in scriptural imagination. As St. Peter makes explicit for us in one of his letters, Noah's salvation in passing through the floodwaters in the ark is a prefiguring of our salvation in passing through the waters of baptism. The fathers of the early church understood the ark of Noah to be a figure of the church, a microcosm of the world being ushered through the waters of judgment and cleansing into a new mode of existence. It didn't take much of an imaginative leap then for the early church's reflection upon St. Matthew's account here to see an image of Christ commanding his church to move out into the storm of the world. If we keep following this image of the boat as the church, we can begin to grasp St. Peter's centrality in the centuries-long story of the church. While I personally consider the Roman church's claims of supremacy as the Sea of Peter over the universal church to be outsized and overreaching, it is undeniable that for centuries, The various local churches gave deference to the primacy of Peter by honoring the Bishop of Rome, which was the place of Peter's martyrdom, as the first among equals in the Church. This story is one of several in Matthew's Gospel that centers Peter as the presider of the apostolic band and the nascent Church. One of St. Peter's more recent successors, Pope Benedict XVI, has written repeatedly on this image of the Church as a boat. In his own way, he describes the anti-fragility of the Church, Almost every time he speaks of the church as a boat, he describes it as a boat about to sink. He says, Throughout all of history, the little bark of the church travels in stormy waters and is in danger of sinking, or at least that is how it seems. And again, Lord, your church often seems like a boat about to sink, a boat taking in water on every side. The Lord does not abandon his church, even when the boat has taken on so much water as to be on the verge of capsizing. What Ratzinger understands is that the Church throughout her history has been slammed by the waves and winds of the world throughout the long dark night of this age. It was in the fourth watch of the night, St. Matthew tells us, or what we would call the dead of night, the early morning hours before the sun suggests itself on the horizon, that Christ approaches the now weary band of weather-worn disciples. These men, many of whom made their living on the sea, would have had tremendous respect for the tempestuous power of the water. But it is when they see Christ treading upon the waves that they are struck with terror and fear. They scream that it must be a ghost, and who wouldn't? But that alone doesn't explain their fear. They would have known the various scriptures in the Psalms, the prophets, and the writings that describe the Lord God as treading upon the water, passing through the stormy seas and commanding them to cease their raging. The same Lord, who had revealed himself to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, The same Lord who had shown the backside of his glory to Moses, the arch-prophet of Israel. The same Lord who is shrouded in impenetrable darkness and wrapped in blinding light, who makes his ministers flames of fire and is hymned by angelic hosts who cover their eyes to keep from looking upon his terrifying glory as they sing the thrice holy. The same Lord who revealed himself to Moses by name, I am. The same Lord who said to Moses, You shall not look upon my face, for no man shall see me and live. This same Lord, whose name they would not have dared to speak, now approaches them, walking on the water as the prophets had written. It's unfortunate that our translators here have acted more like engineers than poets, because yes, technically you could translate Jesus' words to the terrified disciples as take heart, it is I, but what Matthew has written is the Greek version of take heart, I am. It is with the eyes of faith that we see not just Jesus Christ walking to the boat there and then, but Jesus Christ, the I Am, approaching the storm-tossed church here and now, speaking words of peace and courage, for I Am is with us. Peter, as the presider of the church, speaks for all of us with faith, and Christ bids each of us to come. Of course, you know that Peter, as he climbs over the boat and begins to walk on the water toward his creator and savior, doesn't begin to sink and then become afraid. He becomes afraid and begins to sink. He pays more attention to the storm than he does to the sun. He's he's distracted by the wind and takes his eyes off the word. And this has been the experience of faith for the church and all her children ever since. When we perceive the Lord approaching us, we are terrified, for we are unclean and unworthy of his presence. Yet the Spirit prompts us in faith to call out, that he might bid us come to him. In Christ, the good shepherd who seeks out the storm-tossed and the lost, calls us to himself, his voice ringing out over the howling storm of life. And when the howl distracts us and we begin to sink and fear that all is lost, we cry out with water at the corners of our mouth, Lord, save me. And in what is perhaps the most powerful revelation of God's posture toward us, his creatures, Jesus reaches out and down and grabs Peter by the collar and drags him back up into life. And the way you hear Jesus speak to Peter is a revelation of how you perceive God and his relationship to you. There's no rolled up newspaper swatted across the nose here. No tisk tisk can't you see? Peter, every limb shaking in exhaustion and fear, still coughing the water out of his lungs, as the great I Am grasps him in a bear hug and smilingly whispers, Rocky, why did you doubt? As they return to the boat, the storm ceases and everyone in the boat worships Jesus, God the Son. Friends, the life of faith in this world is not easy. There will be seasons, perhaps our entire lives, where it seems as though the church will founder completely. And yet, in the fourth watch of the night, at the moment when we seek beneath the surface, Christ reaches down to us with the everlasting arms of his love and saves us. Our response isn't to make promises about doing better next time, believing harder, working more hours for him. The only response that makes any sense in the face of his mercy and power is to fall on our face and worship him.